So right off the bat, to put it simply, my message this morning will focus on the main idea that Paul rejoices in his imprisonment because it has been used by God for good. So we're going to explore how Paul viewed his trials and his suffering, as well as how he responded to his trials and suffering. Now these two things are closely related. How you think about the things that happen to you in life will determine how you react to them. So what we're going to see this morning is that Paul viewed his imprisonment as having served to advance and spread the gospel. And furthermore, he responds to his imprisonment with rejoicing because he knows that he is honoring God with his life as well, and this is important, as well as encouraging the believers around him. So let's start by looking at Paul's reason for writing this particular section of his letter. Starting at verse 12, as we just read, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So just to give you all a brief reminder of the context, Paul wrote this letter while he was imprisoned in the city of Rome. And he ended up in Rome as a result of the whole affair with the Jews in Jerusalem rioting and trying to have him killed. So the Romans arrest him, and upon finding out that he's a Roman citizen, he's allowed to make a defense before the Sanhedrin, and then to Governor Felix, and then to Festus, and then to King Agrippa, all the way up to Emperor Nero himself in Rome. So Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church because he wants them to think rightly about his imprisonment. It's probably the case that Paul wanted to comfort the Philippians concerning his condition and his mission. You see, short of being killed, being locked away is probably the most serious thing that you could do to a person. Perhaps the Philippians would have felt as though the cause of Christ had been dealt a huge blow. Though Paul was still able to write letters to the churches, and uh, he was able to teach them, and he was still able to re uh, receive a few visitors, he himself could not be out and about preaching the gospel far, as wide, far and wide, even as he had done for the Philippians. And as a result of this, you might get other preachers becoming demoralized and discouraged from taking the gospel abroad. And this is on account of seeing someone so central to Christianity being persecuted. You can imagine other believers at the time saying to themselves, if Paul, a man to whom the risen and glorified Jesus personally appeared in bright heavenly light and personally converted while he was on the road to Damascus, if such a man could be locked away and made so ineffective for the mission that he was given, then what hope could I possibly have? And no Paul. And no one special. So these are things that you could reasonably expect people to think when one of their great leaders is jailed. So with this section of his letter, he dispels that notion with a statement to the contrary. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. His imprisonment is actually having the opposite effect to that which his enemies desire. So let's look at how. Now in order for us to come to the same positive view of persecution that Paul had, it would be helpful for us to look at what was, ironically, the series of events in which Paul himself persecuted the church, back when he was known as Saul. Now you don't have to turn there, but beginning in Acts 6, we see a believer named Stephen debating powerfully with the Jews. 
And he was confronting them with so much truth from the scriptures that they were unable to refute him. So instead, they incite the crowd against him so that they eventually ended up stoning Stephen to death. And those who stoned Stephen took off their outer garments for the grim task, and they laid their clothes at the feet of Paul, then known as Saul. In other words, Paul approved of Stephen's murder and was in fact complicit in it, since he looked after the belongings of those who were murdering Stephen. And afterwards, Paul relentlessly attacks the church, going into people's homes with what amounted to search and seizure warrants from the Jewish authorities, and dragging them off to jail. We see all this playing out in Acts chapter 8. Well, naturally, we see people doing what you would expect them to do under such fierce persecution. They flee. Scripture says that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But here is the important point that I want you to notice. And it's summed up in one verse in the 8th chapter of, of Acts, in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You see, the persecution of the church was the means by which the gospel spread in those early days. Like a great wind blowing the seeds off a tree and carrying them afar so that they can take root in another place, God uses persecution, which is meant to crush the church, to advance and propagate the church. And it is this truth that God can and does use the persecution of the saints to advance the gospel that is firmly in the mind of Paul when he tells the Philippians, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now with that said, we can look at the specific ways that Paul tells us about the advancement of the gospel as a result of his imprisonment. He makes the point that because of his imprisonment, the gospel had come to be known to the whole imperial guard. So we see that the gospel had come to be known to the very palace of Nero, in the very seat of power in the Roman Empire. Paul's circumstances had placed him in very close proximity to the emperor and all of those around him. Thus, the message of the gospel reached even their ears. And it gets better than this. The very reason that Paul is there is because of his witness for Christ. Think about this. It wasn't as if he was arrested for some heinous crime like murder, but just so happened to also be carrying the message of the gospel. Paul's case was peculiar because he was there simply for preaching Christ. Imagine it. Paul wasn't a violent man or a thief or anything like that, so the people back then would have likely asked, why has this man been in prison? And so Paul says that not only had the gospel come to be known to the imperial guard, but also that it came to be known that his imprisonment was for Christ. He was in that situation simply for preaching the good news about Jesus. Thus it came to be known by all that he wasn't suffering as an evildoer, but as a righteous man. I want you to imagine the testimony that this would have been to all who came to know about Paul. Here was a man, innocent of any crime, willing to suffer abuse for the sake of a man named Jesus who was supposedly long dead, but who Paul claimed was risen from death. At the very least, those around Paul would have been convinced of his sincerity. That he wasn't trying to deceive them about the claims that he made. And at best, they would see the supernatural sustaining power of this Jesus, who, at 
oxen was alive and was able to bear up his servants even under persecution. So we can see how the fame of the gospel would have spread because of Paul and his circumstances. And look at all of the people that it was spread to. Prior to arriving in Rome, Paul had been before Felix, the governor, and everyone in his orbit. He'd been before King Agrippa and Bernice and everyone in their orbit. And finally, Emperor Nero himself and everyone in his orbit. You can imagine that these powerful people back then, they were not simply in palaces or chambers by themselves. They had huge entourages. They were servants and cooks and people fanning them and guards. Lots of people would have heard the gospel when Paul came into contact with these powerful leaders. If you read the book of Acts, you will see the progression up the ladder as Paul moved from one place to the next and came into contact with these leaders. So we know for sure that Felix the governor, as well as King Agrippa and Bernice, and all their entourage heard the gospel. And we know for sure that even members of Nero's own household heard the gospel and were saved. Think about that. Not only did they hear the gospel, but they were saved. We see this in Philippians 4, verses 21 and 22. Paul ends his letter by saying, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. And listen, especially those of Caesar's household. See how effective God's use of Paul was. That there would be saints even in the household of a man who would so viciously persecute the church. So brothers and sisters, Paul's response to his imprisonment testifies to the sovereignty of God. It testifies to the fact that God alone is in control of all things and uses every circumstance in our lives to bring glory to himself, whether we realize it or not. So Paul here is providing comfort first to the Philippians and then to every believer over the ages who would read his letter. So no matter what believers face in this life, God uses it all for his glory. So don't get discouraged when you are insulted and mocked for your faith in the workplace or at school. God will use that situation for his glory. Don't get discouraged when we or those around us face health challenges or financial challenges or relational challenges. God will use the situation for his glory. It is not for nothing. And all these things we can be sure that God is working them together for what? For our good and his glory. So that was the first way that the gospel was advanced by Paul's imprisonment. The second way has to do with its effect upon the believers around him. We see in verse 14 that most of the brothers were made confident in the Lord, bold and fearless. But the question is, why did Paul's imprisonment have this effect on them? As I mentioned briefly before, having someone so central to your cause, as Paul was to Christianity, arrested and kept in jail for years, really can be an effective tool in the hands of those who wish to subdue the cause of Christianity. The idea is to make an example of the jailed person so that others seeking to avoid a similar fate turn away from following that path. I remember there was a story in the news a few years ago in which two journalists in Myanmar were sentenced to seven years in prison for reporting, simply reporting, on the atrocities carried out by the government against a certain minority group in that country. The government obviously wanted to conceal what they were doing, and so they sought to discourage anyone from speaking up. 
By imprisoning these journalists, the government was basically saying, if you open your mouth, we will take your life. And history is filled with stories like that. When the price of doing your job is too high to be worth it, fewer and fewer people will do the job. It's as simple as that. So in light of that fact, why did the brothers become confident, bold, and fearless? When one could instead expect them, expect them rather, to become anxious, cowardly, and fearful? The answer is that Paul's imprisonment showed them that they served a faithful master. Notice that Paul does not despair. In fact, he rejoiced. So I want you to imagine seeing that. Imagine seeing a man have his freedom taken away, and what's more, he was even in doubt as to whether he would live or be executed. He was literally facing death. And yet, he rejoices. Is he crazy? No. Paul already knew what I'm telling you now, that his circumstances were for God's glory. And it was evident, and this is the important part, it was evident in how he behaved such that those around him could see it and be encouraged. They could see that Christ had the power to bear Paul up in his affliction. That no matter what his circumstances were, Jesus could and would sustain him. Look again at what verse 14 says. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Notice that they became confident in the Lord. It wasn't a confidence in man, as if they were looking ultimately to Paul, who had this power somehow in and of himself to remain joyful despite his affliction. No, this confidence was in the Lord, in Jesus the Christ. Paul's example became to them evidence of the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus. It pointed to him. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And know well that Jesus gave that assurance after commanding his disciples to go out and preach the gospel. The very same gospel for which Paul was facing persecution. So Paul's attitude to his imprisonment reminded them of Jesus' promise. They didn't need to fear man and his walls and chains. For they serve the God who demolishes walls with a shout and breaks chains by his blood. Amen? Amen? Indeed, ours is the God who saves. So what does this mean for us? Well, in the scriptures here we are presented with a man who encouraged many. Using what was meant to discourage many. So this tells us that we need to be mindful of the manner in which we suffer. I want you to ask yourself, does the way that you behave when you are facing hardship show forth that you trust in God? Does the way that you respond to trials make other people around you want to praise and glorify God for His faithfulness? Does it make others want to continue in the same faith that you have? Well, it should. Recognize that if you are a believer, the truth is that Christ is your hope and salvation. So you have every reason to rejoice and give thanks, even when suffering. Because whether or not that salvation is an immediate rescue from whatever affliction you face, 
If you are a believer, the truth is that your soul has already been saved. And eventually, even your body will be saved. If you are a believer, it ultimately doesn't matter if you die as a prisoner, as Paul eventually would, mind you, or if you are actually physically harmed for your faith. Why? Because after a comparatively short time of suffering, eternal reward and glory awaits. This is the truth for every believer. So if you are a Christian, you must inwardly trust in God, and outwardly your life and, and actions ought to testify to that trust in God. Too often when we go through hardship, we are quick to grumble and complain and despair. But instead, we should be rejoicing and praising and giving thanks. Now, I'm not saying that Christians aren't supposed to express pain and sorrow. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that even when we suffer, when the pain and sorrow is heavy and visible, when those around us can see the tears flowing, and they can see the face twisted in grief. When all can see our head hanging low in sadness. What should also be seen and what should also be just as visible is the truth that though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. We should recognize that how we respond to hardship is a powerful tool for testifying of our Lord's goodness, mercy, and faithfulness. It tells the world that we believe that He is in control and that we trust Him fully and without reservation. It tells those who persecute us that we do not fear man, who after killing the body can do nothing. Rather, we fear God, who after He has killed can throw both body and soul into hell. And it tells our brothers and sisters, continue fighting. For the war has already been won. For the finished work and the victory of Christ enables and invigorates our faith. See through my endurance and faith that Jesus has already won the war and continue fighting for his glory. Brethren, rejoicing in hardship is one of the ways that we can serve and strengthen our brethren. Paul encouraged the brothers in and through his hardships and we should be doing the same thing. Now, continuing on from verse 15. Well, we see that many were emboldened out of confidence in God and a sincere love for Paul. Yet, we see that others preach Christ out of envy. We read, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now it should come to know as no surprise to us that along with those who look out for your best interests, there would also be those who are only looking out for theirs, even at your expense. For our American family in here, uh, in Barbados, we refer to these as bad mind people. <laughs> the sort that would smile in your face and then stab you in the back. The sort that would tell you that they care about the salvation of souls, but really and truly, all they want is the adoration of men and the number one right, you could say, of best preacher, or most successful evangelist, or most honorable elder. 
people who are merely after titles and the accolades that accompany them. Paul says they preached Christ out of envy and rivalry. They wanted what Paul had and were willing to compete with him to get it. But what did Paul have? Well, Paul had a position of authority and honor within the church. He was an apostle after all. He was also a man who was near and dear to the hearts of many believers in parts of Europe and Asia Minor. I want you to note how this letter to the Philippians opens. It opens with Paul thanking the Philippians for sending him generous supplies to aid him in his troubles. So Paul was so beloved by the believers whom he had a hand in rescuing from sin that they did not hesitate to send him material gifts and support when he was in need. And so, of course, these bad mind people seek to be more beloved and more honorable than Paul. So that perhaps they too can cash in on some of these material gifts. Not to use on gospel ministry, of course, but to use for their own personal gain. So, since Paul is confined and he can't freely roam, preaching and teaching as he was accustomed, they would seize the opportunity to get out there and compete with him in the hopes that Paul would soon be a distant memory and they could capture the affections of the people along with whatever material or immaterial gain they could get. Their ultimate goal was not the glorification of God or the salvation of souls, but the glorification of themselves. The contrast here between the righteous and the wicked is very clear. Let's take on one hand the sincere brothers who Paul says preach Christ out of love, knowing that he was put in jail for the defense of the gospel. In other words, they knew the reason Paul was confined. It was because he had boldly spread and defended the gospel. Thus, his imprisonment was meant to curtail that endeavor. So these sincere brothers, recognizing this, seek to love Paul by continuing his mission. Even as the chief workman is laid up, the other workers mobilize. Fear not, Brother Paul. We got your back. And hopefully all of us here can relate to this. You know, when you seek to complete a task and you are hindered in some way, and it looks like you're not going to be able to get it done, but someone jumps in and handles it for you. Well, this happened four years ago now, but I remember one night, my wife came home, and it was around 10 o'clock. She came from a book study at the pastor's house, and she had been helping to wash up the dishes at the pastor's house. But she knew that when she had left our house, there was a mountain of dishes in the sink. So when she got home, of course, she was very tired, but my wife hates the idea of leaving dirty dishes in the sink overnight. So believe me when I tell you, I heard an audible sigh from her as she hung her head and turned towards the kitchen. Ah, but then there was a sigh of relief when she realized I had washed all the dishes. So my point, brothers and sisters, is that I had her back and it was a huge relief to her. By the way, the same scenario happened very recently, so don't think that the last time I washed the full set of dishes was, was four years ago. Thank you very much. That's not the case. But you all get my point. This is similar to what Paul experienced from the sincere brothers. It is the love of support and the comfort of knowing that when you are unable, there are those who care enough to jump in and supply what is lacking. Now, taking on the other hand, the insincere 
who, far from endeavoring to love and support Paul, sought to afflict him in his imprisonment. These people were so self-absorbed that they actually believed that Paul thought in the same way that they did. They must have assumed Paul to be just as prideful and self-serving as them. To believe that they could hurt him by preaching the gospel? You see, to them, gospel preaching was merely a means for them to gain a claim from men and honorable status. So since Paul was in confinement, he was unable to take part in this fame-seeking game that they were playing. They must have been saying to themselves, Ah, boy, he's going to be so jealous of us. Let's preach all the more to rub it in his face and make him wish that he was free. Fools. Meanwhile, Paul is there saying, These men think they're bothering me. On the contrary, I am happy that they're preaching Christ. For Paul, the spread of the gospel was his joy. He didn't care about himself. He, like John the Baptist, had the mindset of, Christ must increase and I must decrease. Paul's attitude to all of this is summed up in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So I ask you, can it be said that we here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church have the same attitude that Paul had? Is our primary concern the glorification of God through the advancement of the gospel? Or are we seeking our own interests? When we do good deeds, are we primarily seeking after the praise of others? We really need to be on guard for the sin of pride and idolatry. Because that's all that's needed for us to be like the insincere preachers. All that's needed is for us to remove Christ and His cause from the preeminent position in our lives and to make it subservient to our own causes. Now, rather than being His servants and tools in His hand, we make Him out to be the tool in the sermon. He becomes merely the means by which we get that which we want. Make no mistake, this is evil. We need to be like the sincere preachers. We need to be on the lookout for where we can add our strength to places where there is lack. Because we love God and His people. Not for personal gain. We need to be like Paul saying, it doesn't matter whether I am lifted high or brought low. So long as the gospel is preached, I will rejoice. So long as God's work is done, I will rejoice. Now something else we should note about Paul's rejoicing in the preaching of the gospel is what it shows us about his theological understanding. Particularly, his understanding of soteriology. Now soteriology is, is basically the theology that deals with the doctrine of salvation. It's the rules, you could say, about the way that people are saved from their sin and reconciled to God. For example, we know that in order to be saved, one of the things a person must believe is that God sent His only Son to die for us. If you do not believe this, you are not a Christian. Those are the rules. So what rule can we glean from Paul's attitude toward the preaching of the insincere? It's this, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 the gospel is the good news about Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his coming again. 
That good news is the means by which God opens the heart of sinners and brings them to repentance. God has designed salvation in such a way that it does not depend upon human cleverness in preaching or human intellect in understanding in order for a person to be saved. Rather, it is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And it works through the means of the gospel message which brings a man or woman from death to life. And that is why Paul can rejoice in the insincere preaching of wicked men. Because the effectiveness of the gospel message can neither be strengthened nor weakened by man. God is the one who sends it forth. God is the one who empowers it to penetrate stony hearts. And God is the one who activates it within the life of the sinner to transform them and conform them into the image of Christ. Salvation or the new birth is a work of God and God alone. Of course, this is an incredibly encouraging truth for we who are called to preach the word and make disciples. But not so fast, Brother Ted, if I hear you say. Are you saying that since the gospel can't be made less effective by the sin of those who preach it, that we need not care at all about our Christian witness? No, that is not what I'm saying. There is, of course, great legitimacy in caring about our Christian witness. We can't just say, well, since God can save anyone with the gospel, it doesn't matter at all how I represent Christianity. No. We Christians ought to be mindful about the way we behave and the representation we give of our faith to the world. I bring this up because I understand if someone said that they would feel uncomfortable with wicked men preaching the gospel. Because at some point along the line, their wickedness might become very closely associated in people's minds with Christianity itself. People watching these wicked preachers and watching their lives, as in Paul's day, might say, is this what Christianity is? Is this what Christianity produces? Is this the power of Jesus? Well, these people are hypocrites. This Jesus must be nothing special. And now that is a legitimate concern. As a matter of fact, Paul himself addresses the issue of hypocrisy in Romans 2.24. He talks about the name of God being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of hypocrisy. He talks about people not taking Jesus seriously because of the sinful lives of those who claim to follow him. And so that is a valid concern. And we all know it happens. We have all probably heard someone at some point in our lives mock or dismiss God on the grounds that Christians or people who call themselves Christians are all hypocrites. But here's the question. Does that hypocrisy stop men and women from being saved? Absolutely not. An unbeliever may mock God because of the hypocrisy of wicked preachers. But if God uses that preaching to open the unbeliever's eyes, he or she will eventually repent and believe. Such is the power of the gospel. Nevertheless, we should care about our outward showing of righteousness, which is in keeping with our profession of faith, because it causes people to respect our God and give honor to His name. After all, the scripture does say, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So getting back to Paul's letter, as long as the insincere preachers were preaching the true gospel, it did not matter to Paul whether or not their motives were good. Because God was using them for good. This again is another 
encouraging reminder that God's will is unstoppable. We, like Paul, ought to rejoice in the preaching of the gospel because we know that God's word will not return to him void. It will accomplish everything that he intended it to. Now, we live in a culture that is filled with misconceptions and lies about Jesus and the Bible. And these misconceptions and lies are often spread by those who should know better because they are pastors. And it can be discouraging. Some of these pastors are like the ones in Paul's time, seeking after wealth or acclaim from men. But every now and then, they do preach the truth. Every now and then, the words leave their lips. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in His name. And by the grace of God, that is enough. So when we hear the gospel being preached, we can rejoice because God is in control of the salvation of sinners. And every single one of His elect will enter His household. So moving on from there, we can see that Paul does not worry about the shame of imprisonment because he knows that he is honoring God with his life. He knows that he was not put there for doing wickedness, but rather for doing righteousness. He knows that there is nothing his enemies can do to take away the hope he has in Christ. And so he is able to respond to his imprisonment with joy. We read starting from verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So let's examine the context surrounding why Paul said he would not be ashamed. We saw earlier that there were those who sought to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. Apparently, one of the ways in which they tried to do this was by trying to shame Paul for having been in prison. And how do we know this? Well, look what Paul says in verse 19. He says that through prayer, through prayer and the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for his deliverance. Well, what does he mean by this? What is it that will turn out for his deliverance? Contextually, we see that Paul is talking specifically about the attempted causing of affliction to him by the insincere preachers. So the text could just have easily read, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the attempts to afflict me in my imprisonment by the insincere preachers will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul is saying that the prayers of the Philippians and the Spirit of Jesus would help him thwart the evil intentions of the insincere preachers. He further says that he will not at all be ashamed. They're trying to shame me, but I will not at all be ashamed. Now one can easily imagine how being jailed could be used to shame someone. Usually it is the lawbreakers who get jailed. Bad people who have done something sinful or wrong or hurtful to society. Perhaps, ironically, the insincere preachers went around slandering Paul as being what they were, fake. Perhaps they went around saying that Paul was a liar and someone who said he was a servant of Christ, but really he was a wicked man who ultimately got what he deserved and ended up where he belonged, in jail. 
Or maybe they accused him of not being useful to God. So God was punishing him for being a failure or for not being as committed to his mission as he should have been. You know, it's similar to, to, to Job's friends, Job, Job's friends when he was being afflicted. They said things like, this is happening to you because you did something to deserve it. But this next one I think is the most convincing. They were trying to break Paul. They were trying to crush his hope. Trying to cause him to lose faith. To do what Job's wife had told him to do when he was going through his trials. Curse God and die. They might say, Paul, you're in jail. So that automatically means you are worthless. You have failed in the one job that you had. So now just fade away while we preach Christ and become more prominent and praiseworthy than you ever were. Just give up. Curse God and die. But whatever angle they were taking, they failed. Paul said he would not at all be ashamed. He would not let being imprisoned crush his spirit. And he certainly would not allow his circumstances to shake his faith in his faithful master. He says that through the prayers of the Philippians and the Spirit of Jesus, he would continue with courage. And rather than dishonoring God by losing his faith, he would finish the race and honor God with his life, even to the point of death. I want us to notice two things here. One, that prayer is indeed real and present help to those suffering and going through trials. And two, that the greatest desire of the godly is to present their lives as living sacrifices to God. So to the first point about prayer. Paul was sure that he would be able to bear his trials because of the sustaining power of Jesus. And the means by which this power was brought down from heaven to work in Paul's life was through the prayers of the saints. God has appointed prayer as one of the means through which his care and supply for our needs is obtained. We are told multiple times in scripture to ask God for what we need. It is not as if God doesn't already know or hasn't already planned to supply us, but we are commanded in scripture to make our requests known to God. Philippians 4 tells us not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. And furthermore, 1 John 5, it says that, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So we know that the Philippians had supported Paul with material things, but more than this, they were supporting him with their prayers. And this is in keeping with God's will. All of us are commanded to love our neighbors and care about their interests. Well, this is one of the ways that the Philippians loved Paul. This is one of the ways that they cared for him. Both the Philippians and Paul could be sure that God heard their prayers because they were praying according to God's will. And as the scripture said, if they could be sure that God heard them, they could also be sure to receive that which they requested, namely the deliverance of Paul. And Paul was delivered. God was gracious. Paul was delivered from the shame of despairing and renouncing his Lord. He was delivered from losing hope. He was delivered from dishonoring God. Paul would later, uh, in the end of his life, valiantly say, I have fought a good fight. I have kept, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. 
Again, this should be encouraging to us. When we see our brothers and sisters going through hardship, it can be hard on us as well. Because often we are unable to end their suffering. Whether it be marital problems, or medical problems, or financial problems, sometimes there's nothing we can do to fix the problems in our brethren's lives. Sometimes we can feel so powerless. And indeed, ultimately, we are powerless. But brethren, we have a direct line to the one who has all power. To the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Even when there is nothing else we can do, we can always pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters that God would bear them up in their affliction. That he would keep them from losing heart no matter what they face. Of course, we can also pray that God removes the particular problem from their lives. But more importantly, we pray that they handle the affliction in a way that glorifies and honors God. And so, when we do, we can know that like Paul, God is faithful to hear us and answer our prayers. So let's always remember that our prayers on behalf of those who are in need is real and present help. Let prayer form the foundation of our help for our brethren. And then we can see where we can aid uh, in terms of physically lending a hand or giving money or time or whatever else situation they call for. But let prayer form the foundation of our help for our brethren. On the second point, the greatest desire of the godly is to present their lives as living sacrifices to God. Recall that the central or main idea of this passage of scripture is that we can rejoice in our suffering because we know that the sovereignty of God gives meaning to our suffering. That even the wicked intentions of man meant to afflict the saints and crush the gospel are actually used to uplift the saints and advance the gospel. What we see here demonstrated by Paul is that he is committed to this truth. Paul was willing to have God use all of him, even his body and his life, to bring glory to his name. He wasn't concerned with holding on to part of his life for his own enjoyment, but was willing to have it completely used by God, even to the point of lifelong imprisonment and death. Now this is a tough question, but how many of us here are willing to abandon our lives, our comforts, our possessions, our status, so that we can be used by God, even to the point of death? Now God is merciful. Most of us will probably never have to face imprisonment and death because of service to Jesus. But the question is, are we willing to? Well, Paul was willing. We can imagine him saying, whether by my life or my death, I will honor God. Not just the things I have, Lord, but my very self I will give to you for your glory. Paul presented himself to God as a living sacrifice and his very body as an instrument to be used for God and righteousness. Paul didn't care ultimately about his own well-being, but only that Christ be glorified. I'm sure some of us could face persecution if we believe that we would be rescued quickly in this life. But would we feel the same if we knew it would mean prolonged suffering and then eventually death? I want you to consider this excerpt from Matthew Henry's Bible commentary. And I quote, Those who desire that Christ may be magnified in their bodies 
have a holy indifference, whether it be by life or by death. They refer it to him, which way he will make them serviceable to his glory, whether by their labors or sufferings, by their diligence or patience, by their living to his honor and working for him, or dying to his honor and suffering for him. End quote. One way or another, Paul would glorify God. We need to have the same attitude that Paul had and be willing to live and die for Christ, all the while trusting that God's sovereignty makes use of our lives and gives our suffering meaning and brings honor to God's name. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, my hope is that each of us here has been encouraged by this portion of Scripture. Seeing a prime example of how a man of God ought to view and respond to trials. What I want each of us to take away from this morning is the truth that the sovereignty of God gives meaning to our suffering. So that we can bear it with joy and so glorify God. I'm not talking about the simplistic, don't worry, be happy that you hear from those in the world. Rather, I'm talking about a hope that is anchored in the faithfulness of Jesus. I'm talking about assurance that is founded upon the promises of a good Savior. This hope and assurance and the strength that comes with it is available only to those who have believed in the name of Jesus, trusting in Him alone for salvation. If you do not place your hope in Christ Jesus, then you have no real hope. If you do not place your hope in Christ Jesus, then the hardships that you face in this life cannot and will not turn out to your deliverance. Rather, and this is so sad, rather the end result of a life of suffering will be more suffering in eternal torment. Without Christ Jesus, there is no glorious and satisfying purpose for you. There is no light at the end of the tunnel for you. If you have lived your life in darkness, rejecting the light of Christ, then you will stay in darkness for all eternity, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Without Christ Jesus, you will not be able to breathe a sigh of relief when all is said and done at the end of your life. Even if you have endured torture, or endured slander, or some other form of hardship, even if you did it for the love of country, or the environment, or whatever cause a man would give his life to, if it was not for Christ, then you have wasted your life, and you have no real hope. I know this is dark and grim, and it's supposed to be. It's the truth about the heavy, serious reality of sin, and what it has done to the human race. Sin has caused us to be defiled and unfit to be in the presence of a holy and pure God. Sin has caused even the best that we could muster in terms of righteousness to be no better than filthy rags, as the scripture tells us. Sin causes all of humanity to be like a dirty old pot that one would put garbage and filth in and then throw into the dump. Sin destroys our potential to be used by God for honorable use. But praise be to God that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can be made clean. We can be made new. We can be sanctified and set apart for honorable use by God. No longer dirty and dingy pots fit only for garbage, but by the miraculous power of God, washed and clean and made new. 
as pristine vessels fit to be even at the table of a great king. This is good news for all of us. God is faithful. God said He would send a Savior and He kept His promise and is even now keeping His promise. Jesus of Nazareth, of whom the scriptures testify was in the beginning with God. And He was God. He came to earth, born of a virgin, being found in the likeness of man, in the image of a servant. And this Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live, perfectly obeying God on our behalf. And he died the death that we deserve to die. Bearing our sin on the cross. But death could not hold him. And three days later he rose from the grave. Showing that he had power over death. And demonstrating that payment for sin had been made. And accepted by the Father. And he ascended into heaven where he is to this day. Interceding for his church. And doing us good. And you better believe he is coming again. To judge the world in righteousness. And to finally and fully save all of those who believe in Him. Thus we can proclaim today that there is hope in Jesus. So if you have not believed in His name until now, I urge you, believe the good news today. Even now as you sit here, even now as you listen. Repent of your sin and turn toward God and live. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, this is the sovereign will of God that Paul rested in. This is the hope that Paul rested in. This is the hope that gave meaning and purpose to his suffering. It is the hope that enabled him to endure it with rejoicing. And it is the same hope that sustains us and bears us up even to this day.